Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Here we are for episode number 69 of the Out of the Question podcast. Today is August 2nd, 2019. And Steve, the question I'm posing today came out of a current event of a prominent evangelical author, pastor, and formerly homeschooled individual that after examining the claims of Christianity, he has now determined in adulthood that he is not a Christian. Now, many within the ranks of Christendom and homeschooling circles in particular are perplexed at this turn of events and are calling for prayer for this individual who, in biblical terms, deserves the designation of apostate. So today's question is, can people recover from apostasy? What do you think? Well, I think that the question of of apostasy has lots of layers here for us as reformational Christians, because we look at our our Calvinistic bona fides, things like the preservation of the saints, our ideas of eternal salvation, and we confuse these theological categories with the realities of what it means to be a Christian. And especially in conversations like this, where we're discussing the sin of an individual, we attempt to philosophize. We attempt to make this a matter of personal preference of apostasy versus to be a Christian. And Andrew, we'll get to this into this discussion, but I think what we need to set out from the beginning is that who defines what a Christian is? And of course, as Chalcedon folks, we understand that it's God, the lawgiver, who says who we are, whether or not we're Christians or not, whether or not we're in the book of life or not. But the idea of being a Christian today has been relegated to a personal choice, you know, through once save, always save theology, through make a prayer and get saved, through fire insurance type theology. We have changed salvation and what it means to be a Christian to be whatever I feel like I am. And it really gets away from what we see in the book of Acts, whereas Christian was people on the outside, people in the world looking in and recognizing what people were. That even that phrase, Christian, uh, in the book of Acts, the 11th chapter, it says that they were first called Christians in Antioch. They were called Christians because the people around them recognized them as Christians. And so in a conversation like this, it'd be easy for people to say, well, why are you picking on this pastor? You know, he has done his own choices, made his own internal decision. But to be a Christian, to take that name, is to say before the world and before your fellow man that I'm making certain commitments. And so to be a Christian and whether or not we can apostatize is a matter of public discussion, a matter for the church, invisible and visible to discuss. So we go back to the idea where people think they choose Christ and then that becomes the door that opens and they become a Christian because of their choice. And I think it misses the point. If, if we're going to look at all men are responsible for rejecting God, then we can't say, well, at least this person who we're referring to today is being honest. He's saying, I look at what it means to be a Christian and I'm not one. So my question is, could anyone or does anyone who 
denies the God of the Bible, can we even begin to claim that they're being honest? They're, they're basically lying to their innermost being. That's right. You know, the, the scripture says that they were not of us, right? So there's a sense that which people who apostatize or who leave the faith are exposed for being frauds or hypocrites from the very beginning. And so we need to recognize that those who are apostatizing are not only making a decision about their self and their personal life, but they are actively rejecting the God who they know exists. And then they are revealing that their life and their action have been lives of a hypocrite. So I go back to when people try to make sense of these things. Jesus gave us the parable of the sower and the various grounds that the seed came on. And I think everybody wants to have wiggle room for people who've been prominent and maybe that they have idolized or patterned their life after, that when those people fall from grace, fall from their profession of faith, and reveal the fact that they may have been professing Christ, but they really weren't confessing Christ, that they want to say, this is different than somebody who's just been sinning, and we should give that person more grace. Do we give the apostate more grace than we give the heathen or pagan who's never professed belief? And I mean, that's a a serious question, because the serious profession of faith that we have uh, amongst people comes with certain obligations, right? So when we talk about apostasy, we're talking not necessarily about the idea that, that people are rejecting something that is found only in themselves, but they're rejecting something that is a picture of Christ and his church, the picture that's greater than themselves. So flesh that out a little bit. What do you mean by that? You mean it, it, this has much greater consequences than just on a personal level? That's right. So the picture of the Christian relationship that St. Paul uses is that every believer is the bride of Christ. Um, this is why a lot of institutional models of church don't match the scripture. Right? So the Roman Catholic Church attempts to make itself the bride of Christ, or uh, institutional uh, churches that are cultish try to make themselves the standard of the perfection of Christ. But what St. Paul does is he puts your personal relationship in an ethical conjunction with the Lord himself. It says how you behave as a Christian in your covenantal obligations, you know, how you carry yourself, uh, how you confess your sin, how you live in your marriage. These all reflect the image of what your salvation was. Your salvation was you being married as the bride to Christ and Christ making you perfect. And so not only is this a picture of a ontological, eternal, perfect reality that those who have been married to the bride through salvation, not only are they perfect, but that throughout their life, when they live lives that are not perfect, they're making statements about what Christ has done. So the reason why sin is so grievous unto us as Christians is because it is a denial of what Christ has done for us. Every time we sin, we are actively breaking ourselves away from that picture that Christ has made us perfect. So not only is it a a spitting in the face of God who has made you clean, but every time we sin or attempt to apostatize, we are uh, destroying the picture for the world who is looking in to see how Christ saves his bride. Right. So an individual who lives a life in an antinomian way, disregarding the laws of God, 
is creating a false picture of the marriage of Christ and his perfect bride. Just like every husband who is unfaithful is creating a false picture of Christ and his bride. It's saying that Christ is not creating a perfect bride. And so not only is apostasy damaging to your personal soul, but it's damaging to the witness of what Christ is doing in the world. So to be clear, the definition of apostate is one who turns away from that which he has professed and confessed. That's right. So is that more serious than someone who has never professed or confessed? I think it's more serious because we have warnings in the scripture about apostasy, especially since when we look at the way covenants work. Uh, A good example to go through apostasy is to ask a very simple question. Was Judas, one of the uh, original 12 apostles, was Judas a Christian? And many people don't really think about the implications of, of Judas's life and their own life. but to be a Christian, right, is to have a personal relationship with the Lord, to experience his goodness in our life, to follow him. There's lots of things we do to describe how we objectively, that is, relationally uh, interact with our Lord. So if a Christian is somebody who knows Jesus, works with Jesus, lives with Jesus, lives under Jesus, follows Jesus, then in every sense, during the life of Jesus, Judas would be considered a Christian, right? He He walks with him, he witnesses his miracles, he participates in it. But Judas, as we know how the story goes, even though he lives and sees what's happening, is the one who betrays Jesus with a kiss. And so when we look at the apostasy of Judas, um, who in countries like where my family's from in Mexico is, is burned in effigy for his terrible example, the apostasy of Judas is even more destructive because he was claiming to be so close. It's more sad because he witnessed the power and reality of Jesus. So somebody, like this pastor you mentioned, who lived so close to Jesus and yet apostatizes even more tragic and even more deserving of condemnation because they have no excuse. They saw it, they witnessed it, they felt it, they heard it with their own ears, and yet nobody says, poor, poor Judas, right? Nobody says, let's pray for Judas. No, we read the story of Judas hanging himself, and we understand that what he has done through his own apostasy, by his own denial of the realities he's experienced, drove him to that reality. Uh, So today, when we see pastors apostatize, can we see them in the same way we see Judas? Now, it's interesting because right alongside Judas's betrayal, we see Peter's denial. And some people might equate the two and saying they both did the same thing. Yet, the mark of Peter being of God's elect and Judas not is Peter's response to his own sin, to his own cowardice, to his own inability to even live up to what he said he would do. And so it's not that we're saying that Apostates are anybody who who sin or fail. An apostate is one who doesn't embrace the remedy that Christ's crucifixion, his death, his resurrection has given us, that we can be back in fellowship after we fall, as opposed to 
an outright betrayal. That's right. And a lot of Reformed theologians have put this out, that in the scripture, there are actual warnings of people not to fall away, not to be led astray, right? If, if St. Peter says, Steve, do not be led astray, how do you hear that message? You can put it through a, you know, a Reformed filter and say, okay, well, Peter says, do not be led astray. But I know, based on you know, the Synod of Dort and the five points of Calvinism, that those who belong to Christ can never be led astray. Right? So is that the way we hear those questions? Or do we hear the words of St. Peter when he says, do not be led astray? And we think, all right, what is he warning me against? He's warning me that every single person is capable of denying Christ in the same way that Peter has. But he is now acting in the place of Christ, of being that person who calls you to repentance. And so I think the problem with culture today is that we are not willing to be Christ to the world. Right? So we say, uh, show Christ's love to the world, show Christ's uh, care to the world. We're very willing to give Christ positive and soft and loving and warm attributes to the world. But in the interaction between St. Peter and Christ, there was sharp, Christ-like interactions where uh, Christ says to Peter, get ye behind me, Satan. Uh, are you willing to be Christ to a world that is going to deny Christ? Are you willing to call people who are heading towards apostasy to say, you don't be led astray. There's one way, one truth, come away from that world. Well, even the Lord's Prayer, we pray, lead us not into temptation, recognizing that temptation is all around us. So that means that we have to truly work out our salvation with fear and trembling because our enemy is a roaring lion ready to devour us. In traditional spirituality, you know, the, the way that we've handled sin for the last 2,000 years sin has been seen as a progressive thing that enters our life. And so we think about this pastor and his uh, trail into apostasy. There are other pictures in his life that would have been signposts, like something is wrong. So we're all familiar with the paradigm of like the seven deadly sins, right? Uh, talking about how there are different habits we form that affect our proclivity to sin, and that there are different ways in which we express sin. I know I talked with young men in our church who have trouble with sin, and they go through this pattern that we can see very similarly happening in uh, what we see in this pastor, where you start out with accepting a sin as maybe a reasonable thing to do, right? And then you're still ashamed of it. Uh, so you, you justify your sin, you find excuses for your sin, and then you, you hide your sin from being recognized from people. And then you become callous to your sin. Then you become callous to the Lord's call on your sin. You have this progression away from holiness, deeper into your sin. And along the way, you have things you do to justify your gradual progression into indifference. So an, a young man who is struggling with pornography might once in a while fall into the sin and then go and confess it to his his wife or his pastor and really regret it. But then unable to shake it, he continues to get deeper into a habit forming where he has this cycle of shame. Now he, he hides his sin and then uncorrected, he becomes dead 
to the call of repentance. He becomes numb to the feeling of shame and he continues and falls completely into. I think this is the way apostasy typically expresses itself in our culture because the leaders in our culture refuse to prevent people from falling into that pattern. And so in this particular pastor, we saw things. He started to deny doctrines that were critical to his identity as an evangelical pastor, denying God's standards for courtship, for marriage, for sexual purity. That was one of these justifications. Then you see him denying God's standards for marriage and gleefully showing that his own marriage was not more important than his personal happiness. He becomes indifferent to God's standard in his life and eventually into this complete indifference to God at all. All of us have this temptation that if we allow any sin in our life to go unchecked, that it works its way deeper and deeper into who we are and eventually works us out of uh, God's call to repentance. And this is a good caution to parents because if we want our children to behave, but we don't also find out what's underneath the surface we can be growing hypocrites and very good ones at that because all they have to figure out is what mom and dad expect on the outside. And then if they do something that's prominent, as in the case of the person we're talking about, then he became a celebrity in his own right. And they probably were very thrilled that they had a child who could get published and do all sorts of things Was anybody really looking and saying, is this foundation secure or does it just look good? And Mm -hmm. so I really challenge parents, especially with the children who are very obedient and very compliant. Not that that's not a pleasant thing. It's nice when you have obedient and compliant children, but you want to get under the surface and find out why do you do what you're doing? If the answer is so as to not get in trouble, that's an answer. Is that the strongest foundation to build your life on? Or, well, that's what you want to hear. And you like me better if I say what you want me to hear. Is that the kind of foundation you want to build on? So this whole idea of interacting with your children, don't be afraid to find out what it is they understand and what they don't. And don't be afraid to find out if they disagree with something the Bible talks about because then you'll get to know the heart of your child, but you can also help your child understand where his or her misconception is coming in and going back to the scripture. That's right. And one of the strengths that this pastor's sin had is exactly what you're talking about. Once he falls into his pattern of sin, he finds a world that's questioning the Bible standards, accepting of him also questioning the Bible standards, right? So, for example, on marriage, sexual purity, and and these ideas, the world hates them. And the world thinks that we're crazy for requiring marriage to one forever in, in the confines of a covenantal marriage. So when he begins to question that, the world agrees with him. And our children have this same exact dilemma. Kids who are raised in a homeschool home or a Christian home When they leave our homes, if they ever struggle with personal sins, which they will, they're going to look to 
the ideas the worlds have that contradict the scripture as an excuse for their sin. Uh, for example, it's really strange how many young 20-year-old men suddenly don't believe in God at the same time they get a new girlfriend. Uh, or it's so funny how many Christian-educated 20-year-old women who suddenly don't believe in God's view of creation once they are outside of their household. You know, there's a correlation between the responsibility of believing God's word and living God's word. I've seen this played out. If you asked a, a 22-year-old woman to be confronted by her 14-year-old self, her 14-year-old self would say, you're dressed improperly. I don't know what you're doing. Why are you watching this? And, and the 22-year-old woman might say, well, I didn't know enough then. But you know what? She knows as much now as she knew then in terms of every cell of her being says God's law is true and we know when we're in violation of it. And so the acceptance that, you know, you take a poll, how many people here think that I should be able to reveal parts of my body because I'm not ashamed of my body as opposed to I respect the other people who come in contact with me and I don't want to cheapen myself, nor do I want to send them into temptation. But you see, they now have a wider circle of agreement, and we can talk about how come there's this wider circle of agreement. Well, and it also forces us to believe what the scripture says, um, which is very strange, because a lot of us, even parents, think we're teaching our kids to trust what the scripture says. But by being squishy on some of these ideas, like one family does it this way, another family does it this way, and presenting a kind of neutrality towards marriage or sexual identity, that somehow we're undermining that God has an actual standard. And Andrea, you have a great story about how uh, Rushduni responded to some of the more difficult things in Scripture. Because, And you can tell that story, but I think some families are ashamed of what the Bible calls to be the standard. They think that what the Bible says is too unrealistic for them to expect of their sons or daughters to fulfill. Exactly. And I will tell that story in a second. But I have known parents that have said things like, I don't want my daughter going to some cheap hotel to have sex with her boyfriend, so he's welcome here. They somehow or other think it's a better situation to have their children fornicating at home rather than fornicating at a, a hotel or a motel someplace. That means that they've been infected with not really having a reason why God's word is true. So they want to make it more acceptable. But I think the, the story you're referencing is when Rush Juni was once being interviewed by PBS reporter Bill Moyers, who asked him what he thought was a very controversial question about homosexuality, Rush Dooney's answer was, there are a lot of things in the Bible I don't like, but that doesn't matter. It's God's word, and we must adhere to it. So he was admitting that there are times when his sinful self would find it much easier not to have to defend that this is what God's word said, but because the Holy Spirit lives within him, we can't thwart the Spirit if we're going to be faithful because the Spirit is attesting to the fact that God's word is true. That's right. Well, the other part of that is when 
people like Bill Moyers talk about standards. They think of like Old Testament law giving, and they think of God as having harsh, rigid standards. And even Christians today think they can make excuses for their child's behavior because we live in a time of grace, right? So maybe in Moses's day, my daughter would have been stoned for her infidelity with her boyfriend in the hotel room. Today, we live in a place where there's grace. So even if she makes bad choices, Christ will always come back to her. We have this this really strange idea that grace will cover all of these sins that expose our inability to call out sin. The picture that St. Peter gives us is actually the exact opposite. St. Peter says in relation to apostasy that the Old Testament, which throughout the scripture is called a shadow, that the severity of the Old Testament is nothing compared to the severity of the New Testament. And we know that's true because when we talk about salvation and the blessings of God, we know that the blessings of the Old Covenant people were temporal, earthly. You know, Abraham gets uh, children, Moses gets a land, right? They're temporal and earthly blessings and that maybe they might be saved. But we look at the New Testament and Christ comes himself. That itself is a huge blessing and he gives us life and life abundantly. So we understand covenantally that the Old Testament was weak compared to the power of blessing in the New Testament. But we don't think that through on the other side. The punishment of death death penalty or or ostracization or (laughs) shunning of the Old Testament, that was weak compared to what St. Peter says happens in the New Testament. In his second general epistle, uh, St. Peter says that they that are entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse than them that began. And in second Peter, he says that those Christians who experienced life in the church, who claim to be part of the spirit, that their condemnation, according to the Bible itself, is worse. It's worse for them to have experienced any type of Christian identity and fallen away. So that should be a a warning and caution towards parents that if you raise your kids in a, a Christian home and you allow them to apostatize, Jesus says that his damnation for them is worse having that Christian foundation than if they had never heard at all. And I've actually heard people say, then maybe it's better that we don't really present the Bible to our kids because then if they fall away, it's worse. So maybe we should just sort of let them be whatever they are, let them go to public school, let's not give a Christian education so that they escape the worst consequence. I've actually had people say that to me. It's a very strange thing to say. (laughs) Right, right. Because... If you don't present the truth, if they don't hear the word, then what do they respond to? And it is only in the meaning that the scripture gives us that life has any true purpose. There's any real work to do. We could only really obtain genuine rest when there is the meaning of how God created us and what we were created for. And so a lot of this wishy-washy, let's pray for this person, maybe he had circumstances that we, we ought to just you know, give him some grace, that's the big thing that you hear. We've bought into this humanistic, relativistic, existentialist sort of mindset, which basically says we really don't have anything to, firm to stand on, because if we stand firmly on scripture, people might think we were unloving. The death of meaning 
really gets into a central question here and is, can we, by our own standards, ascribe meaning to our life? This pastor has said he's evaluated the claims of Christianity, he's evaluated its standards for sexuality, and he has found them wanting. Um, and so we can look at what his decisions have been made in regard to his his books on marriage, his books on dating, and we can give him a pass. But what he is doing at his core is he is trying to be like God and ascribe meaning into his life through his own standards. And we all do this in a similar sense. I think the the reformed Christians who are who are listening to him can very easily brush him off, brush this whole situation off with those who are true believers never fall away. Those who are part of the eternal covenant never have this problem. But I think the real problem with us dismissing a case like this pastor is that we begin to think that God's warnings against apostasy are hypothetical. We begin to think they belong to other people. We think that God's warning doesn't apply to me because I'm elect. And then when you as the elect are struggling with the idea of whether or not you're saved, you begin to doubt whether or not you ever had a relationship with Christ. Uh, Doug Wilson compares this to having a giant sign in the middle of Kansas that says, beware of cliff. And that doesn't make any sense because the nearest cliff from Kansas is 2,000 miles in either direction. In the scripture, when we say beware of apostasy, we are saying beware of really being cut out of the covenant. When Christ talks about the Jews being cut away from the olive tree, they were once truly a branch belonging to that whole tree that was cut away and burned. And that's how it gets back to St. Peter's. Their condition of being cut away and burned was worse than never being a part of the tree. And so for those who are of a reformed mind, they need to hear, if a man not abide in me, he is cast forth, right? Jesus' own word saying that if you don't meet these covenantal obligations, you will be cast forth. And those who are following more of this pastor's view of becoming more evangelical, they need to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. They need to hear both sides of Christ, that he is challenging those who claim to be part of him and claim to have left him. Uh, to stand in his standards. And so this is where it sounds like, well, you're saying two opposite things. I thought it was once saved, always saved. And now you're saying that you can be saved and then not saved. Well, when Paul talks about work out your salvation with fear and trembling, obviously it's, it's more than just I accept Jesus into my heart. It's the whole process of being sanctified, of becoming holy. So it's very likely that this person examined the claims of holiness and said, I don't want that. It's too hard. You know what? I'll just go with the crowd that says we have to find our own way to God and God loves everybody or whatever the, the rationale is going to be. But the fact remains that the whole doctrine of predestination and election is a comfort for the saints. It's not a claim on God that says, okay, I paid my premium and now you owe me. It's when I'm going through difficult times, when I'm going through times of doubt, that what overrides my doubt is the truth of scripture. And as an elect individual, the assurance I have is that God's word is true, not how strong I feel at any given time. That's right. And I think that gets to the idea of covenant. And if you read uh, Rush Dooney, one of his 
criticisms of modern ideas of covenant and why the law of God was so important is because without a clear understanding of the law of God, you cannot understand grace. For example, there's a traditional reformed approach to separating covenants, right? To say that grace is something that comes after the fall. But Rushdie points out that grace, the idea of God's presence and favor, is what created man, sustains man. That everything that Adam did before he fell was sustained by grace, by God's presence, nearness, and divine presence. That even Adam possessing the image of God was an expression of his grace. So everything in what we now call the covenant of works in traditional Reformed sociology exists in a state of grace. Adam exists in a state of grace and falls from a state of grace and is restored again to a greater sense of grace. So when somebody who was a part of the church apostatize, they are denying what happens to them, that they are actually falling from grace. And so when we think about our children or the people in our church, when we refuse to call them back into a state of grace, they are actually losing out on the experience that they once had. They are misidentifying the source of their salvation they once had. They are actively denying what Christ had done through them previously. And isn't that the whole reason why there's a call to excommunicate someone? To basically say, look, these are the standards we live by. You are not living by these standards. Not the hope that we'll excommunicate you so you can rot in hell, so that you bear the consequences of your sin, and hopefully you are brought to repentance. So my question at the beginning isn't, can apostates ever go to heaven? The question is, can they recover from their apostasy? The only way is by means of submitting their lives to Jesus Christ, faithfully, right. despite the fact that they might be ridiculed or harmed financially or whatever else might be the consequence. Right. And so excommunication only works on believers. Isn't that a strange thing to say? Ex- exactly. <laughs> excommunication. Excommunication is a work of evangelism. Excommunication is a work of God's free grace on humans. The Bible describes excommunication as this returning them to the buffeting of Satan. So if you imagine the covenant of grace as being this protective of bubble where your identity uh, protects you from the work of, of evil, of possession, of Satan, of all these different things, what excommunication does is it takes you from inside that covenant bubble and puts you just outside of it, right? It takes you from the visible church and delivers you out of grace into the attack, the realm of this Satan creature who is described as a devouring lion. And so excommunication takes the believer and delivers them over to a certain exposure to uh, God's goodness in the buffeting of Satan. That sounds strange again, but in Eastern categories, so uh, Eastern Christian categories, they describe hell in this very same way. Jesus describes hell as you know this gnashing and burning of teeth. We often associate hell with, with fire, right? Well, fire, and especially since Gehenna is like this fiery garbage pit, produces light. Fire produces heat. Fire produces warmth. And so in Eastern categories, the idea of being delivered through excommunication is to be put into hell, is to be put into a 
crucible of fire, something that is burning off the sinful exterior, exposing the fleshly insides. And so eternal fire is very much the same way. Eternal damnation is delivering you over not just to Satan, but the light and the fire, the, the buffeting of eternal goodness. To not take this too far, but in Eastern Orthodox understandings of hell, it's not so much that we are separated from God and all of his goodness. It's that we are exposed to God's perfect light and goodness and yet have no protection of our sinful flesh from it. So, you know, if you imagine a human being launched into space with no protection of an atmosphere, no protection of a spacesuit, the moment the, the radiation from the sun hits your human flesh, you know, it uh, eviscerates it, it destroys it, it, it gradually breaks down the flesh and turns it into something that's decomposing. The same thing is happening when an apostate is set outside of the covenant of the church. When they're put outside and excommunicated, the light of Christ is showing and destroying that sinful nature until they are chased back into the covenant, or they stay outside and prove that they were never part of us. Exactly. And I think this means that we misunderstand the benefit and value of communion. If, if excommunication means anything, it should be a reflection of what you miss out on by not being part of the communion of saints. And I think that this has to do again with being polluted by the world. Because if we go going back to the death of meaning and the modern philosophy that permeates our culture, a lot of these ideas that now we accept started out as abstractions. And because the Christians at the time didn't identify them for what it was, it was a slow process, but it became to the point now there are people who actually struggle with the idea, should I be able to tell somebody who was born male, if he considers himself female, who am I to tell him he's not? Well. Right. It, it took 300 years, maybe, for these ideas to percolate and end up in the textbooks and end up in the newspapers, magazines, and sadly, sometimes the pulpit, that the atmosphere around a lot of people is they, they don't have a biblical cultural mindset, which is all the more reason why a Christian education that teaches a biblical worldview is so vital if we're not going to lose our children and lose the culture. And the tolerance that is promoted by our culture is what promotes these views of apostasy. Christ has a very strong standard. He has a very defined standard. We cannot be more nice than Jesus, right? We cannot love people more than Jesus loves them. And I mean that in both senses of the term. We think that by being nice, and by nice I don't mean kind, but by being nice and that by our worldly standards we overlook somebody's sin, that we are being like Jesus. But when we refuse to call people on their apostasy, we are being nicer than Jesus. And that's impossible. So for those who Christ loves, we cannot exceed his love for them. And if Christ says, I express my love by calling them to repentance, who are you to say, that you have a different and better definition of love or kindness than Christ himself. Exactly. So we're going back to, by what standard do you live? If it's not the law word of God, you're either making it up as you go along, or 
reading and embracing those who made it up as they went along. That's right. Any suggestions on how to view apostasy, books to recommend, things of that nature? Well, there's a controversial one by Norman Shepard called The Call of Grace. And I think that helps you look at the Westminster Standards and see how God's ideas of covenant shape our call to repentance. And Pastor Shepard does a good job there of showing that even though we hold to the five points, there are implications in there towards evangelism, towards call to repentance, towards God's law that are not solved or ended when we find ourselves safe. I'll recommend one as well by Rush Dooney, The Cure of Souls, where he talks about genuine confession isn't just saying, this is what I did wrong, I did this sin, I did that sin, but it's included. It's confessing our identity in Christ. And that's where the creeds come in. What we profess to believe, what we say, this is true. I believe in God who created. I believe in Jesus who died for my sins. I believe in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. If your life doesn't match up to that confession, then it doesn't give you a pass and saying, well, okay, I'll just give myself a new identity. It basically says that I have cheapened the work of Christ by saying it's just a question of what's in my head as opposed to the objective work of Christ. So that's been a very, very profound influence on my life, looking at what do we mean about the doctrine of confession. That's right. And hear the words of the author of Hebrews who says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled upon the Son of God underfoot? And that's what has happened with apostasy, trampling upon God underfoot. Thank you. I don't know if we can call this an uplifting message so much as a real message. And if we can help people identify course of action that the life of the believer must follow, must take, the road he must take. Hopefully we've bolstered some people in not wondering, does one person's transgression mean that all the truth of Christianity falls apart? Very good. Listeners, you know how to get in touch with us. I say it every week, out of the question podcast at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions and consider sharing this with other people, if you think the conversation this week or past weeks would prove helpful until next time. Thanks for listening to out of the question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.